Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we look to the future. An op-ed in the New York Times read, No one knows what's going to happen. Stop asking pundits to predict the future. But how then, asks the editor of the magazine Foreign Affairs, can responsible policymakers prepare for the next crisis? So I called Niels Metternich, an associate professor in international relations at the University College London. His research focuses on the strategic nature of civil conflicts and the prediction of its dynamics. In a recent working paper, he argues, we predict conflict better than we thought. So Niels and I discuss what we can and cannot predict, why a Nobel Peace Prize winner went to war in Ethiopia, and it's still not a complete surprise, also the role of forecasts in the policymaking process, and finally, what conflicts to watch in 2021. Now, I'm excited to welcome Niels Metternich as our December guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Niels. Hello. We're calling you in London. Can you tell us what's the weather like in London? Well, we have, uh, you know, blue skies uh, awaiting sort of the next lockdown starting on Wednesday. So um, we'll enjoy the, the weather as long as we can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, over here, they say that Berlin only has three seasons. We got spring, sweltering heat, and then darkness. So welcome to the darkness. But you know, we're the Berlin security beats. So I got to ask you, what would you say? What song best describes the current state of the world? Well, I'm not sure whether the song describes the state of the world, but I've definitely found myself listening a lot to Michael Franti, I'm on your side. That's what the song is called. And basically the song is about a person who understands uh, the struggles that you're going through. And I think that uh, we've all gone, you know, every single one of us has gone through struggles, you know, with childcare or family being sick, friends being sick, uh, maybe people even friends and family dying. So I think having someone who understands how much you've been struggling this year, uh, I think is sort of an, an important message. Yeah, you're right. And uh, making connections. I called you to talk about forecasts. And this seemed fitting because we're at the end of a year and looking towards a new year and hopefully a better year. But had we had this conversation last year, I'm pretty sure that we would have covered plenty of topics, none of them being COVID. So I wanted to know why that is. Philip Tatlock in his book, Expert Political Judgment, he's talking about forecasting tournaments in the 80s and 90s with sobering results. He says that the expert forecasts only narrowly beat the predictions from the proverbial dart-throwing chimps. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think it depends on which kinds of topics or um, issues you're interested in. I think what I would want to go back to is Donald Rumsfeld's remarks about the unknowns, unknowns, and the unknowns, knowns, and so on. And I think uh, that shows us what we can predict and what we can't predict. So if we think about the start of the year, is, is, you know, if we could travel back in time, I guess you alluded to the fact that we probably wouldn't have thought about how conflicts might be affected by COVID-19. But this is because this was an unknown unknown. 
right? And so we are much better at predicting things that are known unknowns or are phenomena that are based on some sort of previous pattern that we know. Can you give us an example of a known unknown? Well, if you look at conflicts that are currently happening, so if you think about conflicts like Ethiopia, for example, this is a conflict where there was a baseline high risk of conflict already happening, right? So you had the potential of political exclusion. You have a minority group who used to be in power, who are striving for more autonomy. And so you have a political configuration that is already a high-risk situation. And then if you get like COVID, and we can talk in detail, for example, about this conflict, then you can see an outbreak. So this, I think, is a good example of a known unknown where we already know there is a high baseline risk But then there could be some sort of triggers that then lead to an escalation of these conflicts. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Ethiopia and how it's a known unknown. Because last year, the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won the Nobel Peace Prize. And this year, he's fighting a war in his own country. Maybe you can explain a little bit how this still does not come as a surprise. Well, I think that in Ethiopia, we have to distinguish a few conflicts. And one is the conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia, which is between two, two states. Um, and they were luckily able to get on a more peaceful path. But then within Ethiopia, you have different groups that are struggling for political power. And the Tigray is a very good example where you had a group that used to be in power in this country. It's a small ethnic uh, group. They then get more control over the territory through more autonomy, but then they feel threatened that that autonomy gets taken away. In Ethiopia, you had canceled elections um, and the refusal of the government to accept those elections that nonetheless gone forward in Tigray. And then um, you get groups that are afraid that they will lose out on access to power. And that's where you can see a high risk of, of struggles. Well, you're researching conflict dynamics. And from an ideal typical standpoint, the conflict dynamic would be onset of a conflict, then the duration, and finally the cessation. But I saw that you wrote an article that every story has a beginning, middle, and end, but not always in that order. What does your research say about the dynamic of this particular conflict? Well, I think that The Ethiopia conflict, if you look at it in the context of forecasting, is a perfect example of what we are able to predict well and things that we are not able to predict well. And what we're not so good at predicting is the exact onset of conflict, right? So what is the exact timing of when is it that, for example, the opposition group or the government actually seek to engage in fighting? So that particular timing is extremely difficult to forecast. What we are much better at forecasting is to understand dynamics that are happening in the context of either ongoing or peace periods where, you know, what is the risk, for example, of conflict recurrence, you know, and that might depend on the kind of peace agreements that are in place, the kind of ethnic composition that, that you see in a country. We also are pretty good at predicting escalation. So either escalation in, in the sense that uh, a conflict intensifies more casualties or also escalation in terms of spatial escalation. That is uh, that we understand where does a conflict most likely will spread to. So if we think 
again, about Ethiopia, and we think about what are the potential countries where this conflict is going to spread, we have a pretty good idea, you know, what are the high-risk countries, for example, those countries that are now receiving refugees. Right, like Sudan, for example. And then, of course, uh, bordering states like Eritrea that get involved into the conflict. So once things are underway, we have a better sense of being able to make uh, predictions about duration escalation. That is interesting. So if we go back to this time last year, and you looked at the region, you looked at Ethiopia, what would you have been looking for to try and predict what might be happening there? So the ethnic makeup, the ethnic composition that you have, the potential for ethnic exclusion, I think is a, always a very high baseline risk. But then you also have some dynamic risks. That is, there was a planned election, which got canceled. But we also know that conflicts can, especially in these post-conflict situations, can be triggered around elections or identify around elections. Why is that? Because elections are a contest about who gets what in the country, who gets access, who gets political power. And of course, if people lose power on the ballot box, they might use bullets to regain that control. So now, had we looked at it, we would have found these things. And in fact, Ethiopia made it on quite a few lists of those conflicts to watch in 2020. And now it turns out for good reason. And if you look closer by mid-year, uh, when those lists got updated, you would see that the risk got higher. So apparently, exactly like you described, uh, people were looking at the events of violence there. Um, but then you said the exact time can't be predicted. But how would we know if you had different conflicts, but limited capacities to deal with those conflicts from a policymaker standpoint? How do you decide where to put your resources? So I think that if we look at the kind of forecasting that I'm engaged in, so these are statistical models, um, machine learning tools, so similar algorithms that Amazon would use to predict your shopping behavior around Christmas. So similar techniques that are then being used to predict where is conflict likely to occur. From a policymaker perspective, what these are very helpful for is to get a very good baseline understanding of where countries that have a very high risk and those that are very low risk. So if these models put a country in a low risk category, usually there's actually a very low probability of a conflict occurring. And then once you have this list of higher risk countries, that is when usually, if you look at how policymakers implement these forecasting tools, is you will have a more qualitative assessment of these forecasts in terms of desk officers who are country experts who will look at these forecasts and think about, well, does that make sense in my context? Once you have calibrated those forecasts, they then get entered into the policy process. And then, and that's sort of a big question, is will the policymaker then actually respond to the increased risk that is indicated? Because then, of course, there's questions of political willingness to uh, intervene or to do something about the conflict, for example, send diplomatic missions or do other things. So there is, again, the question of, when we know there is a higher risk in a particular country, will we then actually act upon that? 
You mentioned the methodology of it. You talked about machine learning. Do you think you can explain to us what that is in layman's terms? So machine learning and statistical modeling has been at the forefront of conflict forecasting. And so, yes, I think you rightly ask, what is machine learning? How does it work? Well, these are actually pretty simple algorithms of how to decide which factors are most important to predict a particular outcome. You know, if Amazon, for example, wants to know what you're shopping for Christmas, they're going to look at what have you shopped before and what have people with a similar shopping behavior like you, what are they buying for Christmas? And they're using that information to make a prediction about your behavior. And that is exactly how that works. We're looking at what in a country has happened before, and we're looking at what has happened in countries that are similar to that country and use that information to then make forecasts. What I think is a very important point, and this is an important question you're asking, what is machine learning, is that I think here there is the biggest space for public policy. That is that we need governments to really invest into those technologies, ensure that they not only have to outsource these resources to third-party companies to provide that knowledge, but that within public services, within the government, you actually have these resources and then are able to leverage them to provide public services and do other things with that. Tadlock and Skoblik have a foreign affairs piece this month where they write about the fact that every policymaker is a forecaster because every policy is a prediction. So when we know there is a conflict brewing, these policymakers have different options how to respond. Is it at all possible to calculate the risks and potential benefits of each of these policies? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think that we have to recognize is that not only policymakers are constantly forecasting, but we're constantly forecasting as well. Right. This morning, even though the sun is shining, you know, I rode with my bike into work. I looked at the weather forecast and it was a 50% chance of rain and I packed my raincoat in my bag. You know, that's a forecast that I'm doing about my probability of rain this afternoon. So everyone is making forecasts all the time about the future. That's, that's what we humans do all the time. I think the question then is really what you were saying. Given that we might think that there is a conflict, how should we be assessing risks and benefits of entering those conflicts? And I think that's where um, in, in our field, for example, we still have a lot of work to do. That is to make forecasts on what will happen if, for example, we do a particular intervention. What is if there would be sanctions on a country? What, what happens if there would be diplomatic missions or a diplomatic engagement. That is, really doing predictions around policy scenarios, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruits to actually engage in that because the policymaker in the best of worlds is able to make some sort of evidence-based decision. And, um, of course, that's what we'd like to offer is some sort of evidence on what are the consequences of taking action and potentially taking no action because there might be a lot of conflicts where um, depending on what you want to maximize on, for example, if you want to reduce civilian deaths, maybe sometimes taking no action is actually the better option. So, um, but I think that's where we still have ways to go. So like I said in the beginning, we're at the end of a year looking forward. And now we're talking about Ethiopia. 
And I wondered, you have done research about the severity of conflicts and what determines the severity. If you try and apply this to the conflict of Ethiopia, what are you thinking do we have to expect for next year? Well, Ethiopia will be very high on, on that list because there are uh, groups that are engaging in violence. And, you know, if you broaden that up and think about sort of what are the countries that we should be looking at in 2021, I mean, the first rule is conflict against conflict. You know, you want to look at where do we have potentially groups that are already mobilized, that are already in arms, that have been challenging the government for some time, you know, And these are probably the cases that will rise to the very top. And if there are some additional events likely to be taking place in those countries, that is elections, um, other forms of transition, I think that there is going to be some, some big risks. The other thing that we, of course, have to look forward to in the next year is potential economic struggles that are related to COVID-19. So if you have a already unstable regime, for example, and suddenly they have difficulties of either financing public services, financing the military, other important services that the government does, you know, you might see governments that um, will get new challengers that will try to oppose the government. So after we now spend an episode on looking to the future, I would like to ask you to look back for a second and tell us what you think were the best books of 2020. Given sort of childcare that we had to provide to our kids, engaging in academic debates uh, was difficult. But I think I'd like to point to three books, if I may, which I think are important also in, in respect to our conversation. The first book that is important is a book by three authors, uh, Lisa Haltman, Jacob Kathman, and Megan Shannon, published in Oxford University Press. And it's about peacekeeping in the midst of war. And I think that's an area where we just need to understand more. That is, what are the policies that we need to put in place if we see a war, maybe even before a war, and how do we assess the effectiveness of these policies. And here they assess the effectiveness of peacekeeping, but we can think about a whole range of other policy tools that we need to understand better. The other book, I think officially might have been published at the end of 2019, but I nonetheless want to highlight it here, is a book by Niels Weidmann and Espen Lerd, The Internet and Political Protests and Autocracies. Why I think this is important is, you know, we're living in a world where social media plays a major role in mobilization processes. The government can also control these processes. And so I think understanding how the internet, social media impacts mobilization, the ability to quickly oppose the government is extremely important. But the flip side of it, and this is a book by Jennifer Pan, uh, Cambridge University Press, Welfare for Autocrats, is that governments can also use all these great new technologies to suppress their individuals. And so again, if we now think about, take these three books and think about the question that you asked me earlier, again, looking forward to this year is that probably those governments that are strong, that for example, able to use social media to control their population, probably are less vulnerable to conflict, especially protest in 221. But weak states where sort of the opposition can mobilize quickly will have trouble. Thank you very much. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. 
you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. And of course, don't miss our next episode coming out next month. Bye.